0: On March the 12th, 2020, I went out for some breakfast with some area pastors and the, the conversation that day was, you know, what are we gonna do about this pandemic thing? Is there anything that we're gonna do at our churches? And some of us weren't sure. We were thinking maybe we'll put a hand sanitizer pump in the foyer and maybe we'll ask people to, you know, not shake hands for a couple of weeks. That was sort of what we thought we were gonna do. And to tell you the truth, that seemed like a lot on March 12th, 2020. It did, little did we know, right? And I left that breakfast that day, and I went and I helped a family member move. That was going to be my day. I went out for breakfast, and I was going to move some furniture. That was what I was going to do. But as the day went on, my phone kept on buzzing over and over and over again. There were emails from denominational leaders. There was text messages from our board chair uh, with guidance and questions about, hey, we might need to do more than hand sanitizer. And, and so there was this stuff going on as you know, I thought this day was going to be a quiet day, but it wasn't. And by that evening, we were beginning to formulate a plan about how our church, would, our church gatherings would be different. And about 24 hours later, we had made the decision that we were going to move our Sunday services online. And give it another couple of days, that decision actually was out of our hands because we were told by the province that we couldn't meet in person for public health reasons. And so for the next couple of years, that is what we've navigated. And I remember early on, somebody from our church posted this meme. Um, it, it, it says, and just like that, my pastor turned into a televangelist. <laughs> and that's sort of what it felt like. For the next couple of years, this is what life looked like for us here at West Heights Community Church. Now, one of the things that I will remember is how various church communities responded uh, to the request, to the guidance, to the decision by the province. See, some of us decided to be compliant. We all complained quite a bit. And then some of us decided that we were going to be defiant to the public health orders. And we know churches in this area, we know churches in southern Ontario that went to court to fight being told what to do. And all of these various responses generated their own various responses. You know, were we with those who chose to comply or were we with those who defied? And there didn't seem to be a whole lot of middle ground at that point. In fact, in the public sphere, you could read blogs, you could read letters to the editor, you could hear debates on call-in shows on local radio that talked about the church. didn't talk a whole lot about Jesus, but it talked about the church in terms of, you know, complying or not complying. And the tone of Christians and non-Christians didn't seem to be a whole lot different, to tell you the truth. For the most part, we were dividing into teams, us versus them. And in some instances, what was insinuated was that those whose responses were different than ours were not as committed to Jesus as we were. Now, this sermon is not about pandemic responses, thank goodness, although now we know, right? It's not about pandemic responses, but this morning we want to continue in this sermon series called Practicing Shalom. Shalom. And in this series, what we're doing is we are acknowledging that we are living in polarized and and divisive times. And this morning, we want to look at how our understanding of shalom or God's peace can speak to this temptation of seeing people in terms of us versus them. Now, this is a whole lot easier said than done, because there seems to be plenty of issues out there that have the potential to separate us from one another. Last week, for example, I started by asking this question. What do pandemic mandates, trucker convoys, and Donald Trump have in common? And you should have seen, from my perspective, the awkwardness of shifting in seats, okay? Some of you guys were saying, where is he going with this? And I think collectively, a lot of us have some trauma associated with some of these things. And these are just a few things, a few of the realities, a few of the issues that have the potential to divide us from one another. I mean, there are things that might not be hot-button topics, hot-button issues, but they're just realities of life that can be dividing lines in relationships and dividing lines in society. In you know, different levels of education, you know, our various economic statuses, even race, our are, are, are realities of life, but can divide people into us's and them's. Or what about... And then there's other things that have the potential to be potential flashpoints in our relationships. Things like politics, the division between liberal and conservative ideology, that seems to be deepening. Or what about our thoughts on things like sexuality or gender or immigration? I mean, if we bring that up in conversation in the foyer today, we might find ourselves having an argument or a very uh, passionate conversation, to say the least. And as Christians, we have this messy thing called theology in our system of beliefs. And in church history, theolo- differences in the theology have been the justification for wars and have been the reason for executions. And while this might not be our experience today, we recognize that Christians have a tendency to, to view those with different theological convictions with suspicion and maybe even with contempt. Now, it's, it's one thing to identify problems, but it's another thing to do something about it. And as followers of Jesus, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are to be a part of how God is working in response to the problems and issues that exist in our world. And I think this includes bringing shalom or God's peace into this pattern of us versus them. Now, is it wrong for us to to find affinity with people who share our experience or our perspective? Is that wrong? I don't think so. In fact, we need places and we need people that help us feel safe and help us feel supported. But where this can go wrong is when our attitudes and actions begin to see the people who don't share our experiences or don't share our perspectives as enemies. And usually enemies are people that are to be conquered or to be beaten in some way. And if we find ourselves only connecting with people whose experiences and thoughts are like ours, Um, then it becomes easy to turn those other people whose experiences and thoughts aren't like ours, it becomes easier to turn them into enemies. And not only is creating enemies counter to the way of Jesus, it's really unproductive. It really is. Because nothing productive happens when we create enemies. Rather, productive things happen when we meet in the middle. Solutions to complex problems are most often found in the messy middle, not in the extremes. And so a part of how we do this is through practicing shalom like we introduced in our teaching time last week. And if you missed that, you can find that teaching time online, either via YouTube or our website. Uh, But our, our big idea this week is that practicing shalom means that we reject the absolute categories of us versus them. All right, imagine with me this scenario. A child, maybe your child, comes home from school one day, and they've just had a bad day. Everything about their day hasn't gone right. When they got to school, they realized they forgot their homework, and in forgetting their homework, they got reprimanded by the teacher. And not only that, but it seemed that today was the day that their friends decided that they were going to be the butt of all the jokes. And so they were kind of made fun of all day, and it wasn't a good day. And so when they got home, they walked in the door, and they burst into tears. It was a bad day. Now, what we would expect is that as a parent, we would see our child in distress and we would go and offer help. But in this particular instance, the child and the parent had had a fight earlier in the day. Perhaps that was the thing that made the, set the day off on the wrong foot to begin with. And the parent had just been stewing in it all day. And as a result, they were unable or they refused to give the child what they needed in that moment. Now, my hope is that, right now, you're thinking that this parent isn't responding well. And I mean, shouldn't the love for their child uh, move them past that morning's fight? But in a sense, this sort of response seems to accompany us versus them thinking. That we find ourselves seeing an individual or a group of people as being other than us. When we do that, then our response can be to begin holding things back from them. We can hold back our love. We can hold back our attention. We can hold back our respect, our support. Maybe we even hold back the sense that they deserve the same good things that we do. In fact, we might find ourselves starting to, to believe that they deserve bad things to happen to them. I think the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 should serve as a caution against this way of thinking. And they form the, pattern, they form the basis of our first point this morning. That we practice shalom when we refuse to withhold ourselves from others. And so let's flip over to Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are, you do, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. These verses are, are found in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is, is describing the kingdom of God and what it means for his followers to be a part of the life and the love of the kingdom. And here, Jesus is calling his followers to be perfect, just like God is perfect. That is to say uh, that that we are to follow God's example of, of not being withholding. Now, if you were to think that anyone would have a good reason for maybe withholding good things from humans, that perhaps God might be able to justify this. I mean, after all, sin is kind of a big deal to God. It's a, it drives a wedge between, in our relationship. It drives a wedge between us and God and, and goes completely against the essence of who God is. It's an offense to God. And so sin could be a reason for God to hold back good things from people like us. But that's, that's not what God does. See, as Jesus talks about our response to to those who we might consider enemies or or our response to the people who seem to committed to making our lives miserable, he tells us to look at God's example of how he he doesn't withhold good things like rain and sunshine. In fact, we should understand the, the provision of these basic things of life as an expression of God's love and God's grace. And this is the example we're to follow as we interact with other people. You know, Jesus' followers are not to be withholding love even for our even towards our so-called enemies. But this is hard, right? You know, naturally we find when we find ourselves at odds with someone, we want to pull back. We don't want to offer ourselves to them. And sometimes we do this consciously, while other times we're not sure that we're not even aware that we're doing this. We just sort of instinctively step away. But this practice of pulling back isn't helping the polarization and division that we see that we are experiencing instead it's an action that actually deepens divides and so what jesus is saying in these verses i think can help us uh, take steps towards refusing the paradigm of us versus them instead we hear jesus calling us to do the hard work of enemy love which He shows us through his life and his teaching, it involves moving towards others with a a posture and attitude of sacrificial service. And he teaches us to be praying for those who are making our lives miserable. See, when we are praying for and when we are serving others, it's really hard to view them as enemies. It really is. Instead, what we're doing is we're practicing shalom. We're practicing God's peace. Back in the summer, we called our kids in from playing outside one night because it was time for bed. It got a little bit late. Time for bed. Kids, come on in. And the question that we heard is, why do we have to come in if the neighbor kids are still outside? It's a solid question. The neighbor kids have a different bedtime. Their family's on a completely different schedule than ours are. uh, And they're still out there playing. It's It's a good question. But it was late, and we were responsible for the, parent, for the kids in our house. We're responsible for the parents in our house too, but the kids in our house. And we weren't responsible for the well-being of our neighbor's kids, especially not for their bedtime. We were responsible for ours. You know, as we talk about practicing Shalom, the question could be, why should we be any different than what we see playing out in society around us? If everybody else is dividing and everybody else is harboring animosity, why should we be any different? Well, the reality is that because of Jesus, Jesus' followers are called to be different from the patterns that we see playing out in society. And while it should be true, in all of our relationships, shalom should be a defining element of, of how we specifically relate to other followers of Jesus, how we relate to one another in a community like this. And so our second point this morning is that we practice shalom when we allow Jesus to define how we understand one another. And to help us with this point, we're going to look at what the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians and also in Galatians. And in both cases, we need to appreciate how radical radical Paul is talking about how we should be rethinking our relationships to one another. Because what he's introducing here is a society-altering paradigm for how we look at one another. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." You know, what Paul is doing in these verses, he's, he's describing what Jesus has done uh, to the divide that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Gentiles are anybody who's not Jewish in the first century. And uh, the Gentiles were looked down upon by the Jewish people in the first century. And this wasn't a small divide, like sort of like, well, you know, we think we're a little bit better. This was a massive divide. In in fact, it was said that Gentiles were created to be the fuel for the fires of hell. Hmm. That's a big divide. And because of this attitude, helping a Gentile woman give birth wasn't allowed because it would be assisting bringing another Gentile into the world. These barriers are absolute. And it went both ways. It didn't just go one way. This was an absolute barrier, a, a, a barrier you couldn't cross. And what Paul does in these verses is describe how Jesus dismantles these barriers. He says, those of you who are far away, and the Gentiles were said to be far away from God, so far away that, you know, they were just gone. Those of you who are far away have been brought close by the blood of Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus has made these two groups one, and how Jesus has destroyed, utterly obliterated, the dividing wall of hostility. And that's a significant statement right there. Sometimes we read these things and we don't quite understand, but this was huge. This was life-changing. There aren't two groups anymore. they are one. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 28. So in Christ Jesus, you you are all children of God through faith. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus." Here again, Paul is describing something that, that seems countercultural cultural and, and impossible, that because of Jesus, the things that would divide people in society um, are to have no sway in the relationships that exist in the church. And this would have been completely shocking because, these are, these, because the world as they knew it were, were, was based on these differences. You know, we just discussed it. Jews and Gentiles are absolute categories. Both looked at each other with contempt. Neither saw the other one as being worthy of good things. Slavery was a fact of life in the ancient world, and it defined a person's value and worth and standing within society. A free person had rights and opportunities, a slave did not. Women, likewise, had had little or no rights, and very few were educated. And you know what, there was very little, if anything, society, anything in society at that time that would have supported the mixing of these groups. In fact, society encouraged, encouraged divisions. You know, there were hierarchies, there were structures of power and wealth and privilege that would have promoted barriers and divisions. And yet Paul says, because of Jesus, this has all changed. None of those divisions matter anymore. Because of Jesus, they are all part of the same family sitting at the same dinner table and having equal access to God's love. See, as followers of Jesus, they are now all on the same level together. And this is so radically different from how society functioned that those outside of the church didn't know what to make of it. And so rumors began to, uh, to uh, arise to accuse the early church of doing bad things. Communion seemed weird, so let's accuse them of cannibalism. And incest was an accusation uh, made of them. And uh, the, the idea of equity between men and women, that was so extraordinary that Paul had to give instructions to women to curb their freedoms, their Christ-given freedoms, So that they wouldn't catch unnecessary heat from those outside of the church community. See, what Jesus did is he flattened out these socially acceptable barriers and put people on the same level. And this radical unity and commitment to one another in the face of an us-versus-them society made them stand out. The relationships became reimagined around the person and the work of Jesus and when we do that, that, that is shalom. You know, one of the things that we said last week is the, that the temptation as we go through this series is to begin pointing fingers, right? It's going to be, to it, it, what seems to come naturally is to be thinking about uh, those people out there or in our lives who are part of the problem of polarization and division. That's the temptation. But again, what I'm going to say is that this conversation we're having right now isn't about those people out there. It's about us in here. It's about us. See, we each have a role to play in bringing God's shalom to life. And in particular, how we relate to one another as a church community, it matters. It really does. And I say this recognizing that there's many of us in this room here who are new to West Heights. In fact, this is a really interesting dynamic at work here because you know there's some of us who have been here a really long time and there's a lot of others of us who there are, this is our first Sunday and there's a bunch of us in between. And we're all experiencing this phenomena right now where we're looking at who's at church right now and we're like, do we know these people? And so we have some work to do together to be this body of Christ, to be this church community. We have a unique opportunity in front of us here. And practicing shalom together is a part of that. See, we could easily follow the trends that we see in society of dividing into camps, either because of, uh, of the natural factors of life, like age and stage of life, or because of our experience or our thoughts on some of the hot-button things that are going on in our world. You know, division is normal, and division is easy. But if you're a follower of Jesus, we're not called to normal, and we're not called to easy. Instead, Jesus invites us to base our relationships to one another on our mutual connection to him. Now, does this mean that we suddenly have to agree on everything? Or does it mean that we no longer have things that make us unique from one another? Or does it mean that we can't acknowledge the difference of of opinion that somebody else has? Or maybe we have. No, it doesn't. But Jesus, what Jesus does is he, he creates a bridge of commonality that connects us and can help us keep those differences in perspective. In practice, I wonder if James chapter 1 verse 19 can be helpful for us this morning. Speaking to followers of Jesus, James writes, My dear friends, you should be quick to listen and slow to speak or to get angry. You should be quick to listen and slow to speak. You know, common ground is hard to find when we struggle to Listen. And it's hard to listen when our instincts are that we need to quickly uh, speak for this or against that. You know, we live in a hot take culture that seems to demand that we have uh, an opinion about everything. But really, is that reasonable? Can we actually do that? I have a friend of mine who texts me whenever the Blue Jays uh, make a trade. Uh, he, he's done that multiple times over the course of the last few weeks. And the feeling I have whenever I get one of these texts from my friend is that I need to know exactly what I think about this. But I don't. I can't. I've, half of these people I've never heard before. I follow baseball. I don't know who this person is. But how can I have an opinion of it? And you know, anything that I have to offer is at best a hot take. And a hot take is a quick response to a current situation. And if history has taught me anything, my hot takes about baseball and about anything else in life, my hot takes are usually wrong. You know, as followers of Jesus, I think we need to ad- adopt a posture of being quick to listen and slow to speak. Especially in our relationships with one another. See, the reason for divisions comes, uh, for, some of, for, for some, some of the reasons divisions come about is because we don't understand one another. And sometimes what we don't understand, it makes us feel afraid or it makes us feel threatened. And those, that feelings of, of fear and feeling threatened, that doesn't lead to good things. Instead, fear tends to create division. But the posture of listening invites us to lean forward with interest and to seek to understand and to, and to find common ground. You know, listening involves asking questions to help us understand someone better. It's saying, can you tell me more about that? Or, can you help me understand why that's important to you? Listening involves acknowledging the perspective of who we're talking with. Hey, I can tell that's really important to you. Or, wow, that must have been really hard. Or, thank you, I've never heard that explained that way before. Listening also involves giving the benefit of the doubt. You know, to practice shalom means that we don't jump to quick conclusions about others. But we enter into conversations in good faith, committing to get to know who somebody is and and, and what has shaped their story. You know, as followers of Jesus, we enter into these conversations recognizing that God is at work in the person sitting across from us just as he's been at work in our own lives. And to piggyback on what Brian encouraged us to do this morning... One of, the re- one of the things that we need to do in addition to these listening practices is we can't listen unless we have a chance to actually get to know one another. And so putting ourselves in a position to you know, ask some of those great questions in the foyer after the service or come to some of these events where we can actually be in the same place and put ourselves in a position to be in relationship is an opportunity for us to be practicing shalom and practicing listening. You know, what a posture of listening does is it crosses over boundaries that allows space, for, it allows space for us to discover what is common, what we have in common. And as followers of Jesus, Jesus is a part of what we have in common. And so in this posture, in this posture of commonality, we practice shalom. As we wrap up this morning, I want to just point ahead to what we're going to talk about next week because I'm recognizing, and let me just say, all of these messages have a million loose ends, Okay. Uh, and there's some loose ends that have already kind of come up. But next week we're going to talk about uh, the, how the practice of shalom includes forgiveness and reconciliation. And uh, we're going to touch on the reality that sometimes someone ha- has caused us some serious harm or who has committed, committed, or is committed to a way that we can't endorse. And so what does shalom look like in those settings? We're going to touch on that a little bit next week. Well, let's, we're just going to wrap up by praying, and I'm going to invite the band to come up. We have one closing song this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. And Lord, we again acknowledge that this, um, this practice of shalom is, is different. It's hard. It doesn't seem to come naturally. God, we live in a culture of us and thems, and, and conf- where conflict is, and hot takes seem to be normal. And yet, Jesus, we are looking to you to show us a new way, a better way, a way that 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 uh, is productive, a way that results in good things, Jesus-like things in our lives and the lives of others around us. Where it's easy to point fingers at others, it's easy to point fingers and identify the problems that exist around us. But this morning, we ask that you would speak to us in our settings, in our lives, in our workplaces, at our homes at our schools, Lord, and help us to identify how we can be a part of bringing your peace and your reconciliation into this world. In your name we pray. Amen.